Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Let's bring in our next guest now. Going to be a fascinating conversation with Jim Anderson, who is CEO of Social Flow. And in full disclosure, Social Flow is a platform that is used by Bloomberg for social media purposes, used by many, many companies. Jim, welcome. We brought you on because we want to talk to you a little bit about what happened at the Tulsa rally over the weekend and how K-pop Zoomers and uh, <laughs> those who stand with them, if you like, uh, managed to reserve tickets for this uh, rally. And then, of course, uh, they didn't turn up. They, they weren't yep. interested in doing that. They, they How did it work? T- talk to us about TikTok and the power of uh, sort of a, uh, amplification. Yeah, Bonnie, you know, thanks for having me. This is, this is a great story in terms of just illustrating the power of viral distribution on social networks, right? I mean, that's not a new concept. Facebook's been around for more than a decade, Twitter and others. And so what we saw is, is TikTok, which is an application typically used for like cute dance videos, being harnessed in a really new and different way. But the same algorithms that power those dance videos and make them show up in your feed also power the teenage activists efforts. And, and interestingly, they're, they're disappearing messages, right? One of the things about TikTok is the messages disappear after some period of time. So not only did their parents not know what was going on, because parents, I have a teenage daughter, it's awfully difficult to know what's going on with your teenager, <laughs> but the, the messages themselves disappeared. So it's sort of teenage tradecraft at work in a, in a social media world. So Jim, do we have hard data that, that shows that this is what really happened, that there was in fact uh, I guess, quote unquote, bogus requests for tickets that were uh, never fulfilled or picked up? Well, we don't. And there's really no way for us to know. I can I can bet you that the, the campaign, the Trump campaign has that data, but it's certainly not going to be in their interest to uh, sort of give this story any oxygen and to admit that that, that happened. And I do want to make one really important point, because this, this issue often gets conflated. The activities of the teenagers didn't keep people from showing up to the rally. I think the fact that we're in the midst of a global pandemic uh, the rally was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, that population of Tulsa is 400,000. You know, you're asking to fill an 18 or 19,000 feet arena plus 40,000 feet of, of overflow uh, from the outdoor stage. I think what they did, though, is they created the expectation, oh, my goodness, this thing is out of control. The campaign wanted to believe that there was uh, sort of this uh, giant pent-up demand. And so then they started talking about it. They wanted to believe it was true. And then they got set up just for a big, giant sort of deflation of expectations. That's what the, the teams managed to do. Exactly. So on the one hand, there was a little bit of hubris. They were boasting about how many people were coming. They were right. creating outdoor overflow spaces. And on the other hand, there was complacency. They didn't sort of call to arms the, the base, which may have been a good thing given the, the coronavirus has definitely not gone away. What's the power that you know, a, a group of fans like K-pop fans and Zoomers and so on can leverage on TikTok beyond this. Is there is there something a little more political in terms of getting out the vote or in terms of, you know, um, convincing people to participate in democracy more? Yeah, it, I think there definitely are a lot of things. And, and, you know, many people are excited that, wow, this is sort of the tip of a much larger sphere as uh, teenagers come of age, come of voting age. Specifically, I saw a statistic this morning that one of 10 eligible voters will be Gen Z uh, in the upcoming presidential election. So, you know, they, they're starting to find their voice. And I'll, I'll go back to these algorithms. I mean, it sounds very sort of techy and not very accessible to talk about algorithms, but largely algorithms are apolitical, right? They, 
they can spread content uh, on left, right, middle, up, down. They, they generally are not political. I know people's criticisms uh, of them are significant, and they feel like their side is being discriminated against. But if the teenagers are excited and are spreading it and are paying attention, the algorithms notice that, and then they contribute to that. And that's that viral distribution of, uh, of content, is, and, and that's exactly what TikTok is doing. So, Jim, I, I know that TikTok is a Chinese company. I can imagine the Trump uh, administration, the Trump campaign knows this as well. Should we yeah. expect a torrent of tweets coming out of uh, President Trump uh, you know, saying that China is uh, interfering with the uh, election or the campaign? Well, I would always hesitate to predict what the president's going to do on Twitter for all the obvious reasons. Right. But I will say that there was bound to be some really uncomfortable conversations and probably an uncomfortable Sunday at TikTok. When you're owned by a Chinese company, they've gone to great efforts, including hiring a very senior executive from Disney to try to sort of build their brand as not a Chinese-owned brand. That's probably the last thing they want to see. And, and to be clear, TikTok, TikTok really had nothing to do with this from a company standpoint. They just provided the platform. The K-pop users or other teenagers provided the excitement and the energy, and they used the platform in some ways as the platform was designed to be used, which is to distribute you know, viral videos. Um, but, but in other ways, you know, in sort of the, the use case in and around politics is, is certainly not what uh, TikTok likely had in mind. Jim Anderson, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, fascinating kind of story here that I'm sure is going to continue to develop and will continue to follow. Jim Anderson, CEO of Social Flow, uh, based in uh, New York City. Vani, that's just interesting. You think about social media and the impact it's having on, obviously, across uh, all of our lives over the past uh, 10 years or so, but certainly the political sphere as well. And we thought it was really limited to a kind of a Facebook, a Twitter kind of thing, but here comes TikTok. And each one of these platforms has a different way of connecting with the audience and it may be the same audience it may be different audiences but TikTok content needs to be very different from Twitter content or Facebook content and just as a as a sort of a, a separate example you look at Sarah Cooper who's the the impersonator of yes. President Trump <laughs> she made her debut really on TikTok even though she had been on the other platforms it was on TikTok that she really took off and then transferred it to Twitter. Yeah, and as Jim mentioned, TikTok uh, obviously really popular with the really the, the younger demos, and that's uh, certainly interesting from a political perspective. And it is time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined now by Bloomberg Opinion columnist Neil Ferguson. He's also a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, noted historian, of course, and author of many, many books from The Ascent of Money to The House of Rothschild to much, much more. Neil, thanks for joining. Your latest column, America is on the road, but whether it's on the road to relapse or recovery is the question. What say you? Well, in, maybe both. Uh, that's to say, we can see really quite a rapid recovery, uh, not only in some of the obvious numbers like uh, the unemployment rate or retail sales, but actually mobility data, which are a great high-frequency tracker of what's happening in the country. And you can see that just looking at, say, the Google data on uh, trips to retail uh, and recreation destinations, they're on track to be back normal by around July 10th or 11th. And at the same time, what we're seeing is uh, significant increases in case numbers, not nationwide, but in particular regions, the South, for example, some Western states. And so we got both uh, relatively rapid, if not V-shaped recovery, 
And also, and of course, there's a relationship, you're getting this increase in, in case numbers, positive tests and hospitalizations, especially in states like Arizona, Florida and Texas. It needs to look like you've got, you've got a second wave of COVID-19 in those states. And that, that's the, the problem thing that we're seeing in the U.S. today. We're rapidly recovering economically, but without social distancing, without mask wearing, people are being somewhat uh, reckless by comparison with uh, their European counterpart, and that's driving COVID-19 case numbers back up. Neil, to what extent has the, I guess, the COVID virus and the response to it at the state level and uh, the reopening strategies at the state level, how is that to what extent has that become politicized, uh, i.e. the more conservative uh, states and regions of the country perhaps taking a, a less stringent uh, COVID response than maybe some of the more uh, democratic or liberal uh, regions of the country? It's high politicized uh, more than, I think, uh, in any other country that I've, I've studied. Uh, attitudes towards uh, the, the pandemic itself vary substantially across party lines. If you look at civics data, Democrats are still really worried about COVID-19 in their area, and uh, Republicans really aren't. But you look at the different uh, strategies states uh, have adopted, the speaking blue states, slower to reopen, uh, using tough lockdowns all along, and red states, uh, less intense lockdowns, earlier reopening. And so what that translates into is a really striking feature, a really striking divergence uh, in not only economic recovery, but the second wave problem. Uh, now, there's a slightly confounding fact here, which uh, some, uh, some epidemiologists have been commenting on in the last 24 hours, that part of what makes COVID-19 spread a lot is air conditioning. It seems. And so in states that are hotter, like Arizona, uh, where people actually don't want to be outside because it's so hot, same is true in parts of Texas, obviously in Florida, aircon use has gone up in the last couple of months. Uh, and so because of the correlation between red states and hot states, it's not just a partisan divide that's driving mm. a second wave in red states. It's also the fact that they're hot states. Yeah, and I will say our Brooks Sutherland had a great column on that the other day. Neil, talk to us about the different approaches to reopening around the world, because obviously, you know, countries can't stay closed forever. And you have Italy, which was extraordinarily badly hit, reopening. And I'm sure they were terrified, but they did it. Uh, you have the likes of Sweden, which didn't take the same approach whatsoever and is having sort of different problems now. Is there a model that's maybe the perfect model? Well, there are certainly better models than the one that the U.S. is uh, adopting, which my colleague at Hoover, John Cochran, called the dumb reopening, where you just go back to normal without social distancing, really, and without mask wearing. If you go all the way to East Asia, where the, the pandemic struck first, the role models are Taiwan and South Korea, which... Uh, really pioneered early testing and contact tracing, didn't have to do full lockdowns. And in fact, in the case of Taiwan, have had minimal COVID-19 fatalities. Europe lies somewhere in the middle, and it is a varied picture because you've had pretty disastrous experiences in Italy and Spain and Belgium, uh, whereas in Germany, and also interestingly in, in Greece, they, they quickly cottoned on to the need for, for testing and, and contact tracing. And I think if you look at the uh, European states that have reopened the soonest, and that would include uh, Germany, uh, Austria, Denmark, uh, as well as Switzerland 
uh, there's no sign of, at this point of second waves in those countries, not in case numbers and certainly not in mortality. It's all about jumping on these super spreader events because COVID-19 is, is spread by a relative minority of people who give it to a lot of people, like 20% of infected people are responsible for 80% of infections. If you're doing testing and contact tracing, you can get those super spreaders or stop the super spreader events from happening. If you don't do testing uh, and contact tracing in a systematic way, which is the American route that we're going down, it's basically playing whack-a-mole with a blindfold on. And if you've ever tried that, you'll find that you miss a lot of mold. Ken, you know, at the beginning of this whole issue here, this whole process of dealing with the, the pandemic, I was surprised there wasn't a federal response. It was more of a state-by-state response, and we became accustomed to hearing Governor Cuomo from the state of New York giving this, the daily update. Should I have expected a federal response? Well, historically, because it's a federal system which devolves a lot of uh, responsibility to states and indeed municipalities, the answer to that question is no, really, because in all the previous pandemics, whether you look at the big influenza of 1918 or the, uh, the other influenza pandemic of 57, 58, it was essentially a, a decentralized uh, story where states and municipalities took their own decisions about how strictly to uh, limit public gatherings. So this is certainly not an unprecedented story. I do think that the federal government has a role to play, though, and I don't think it played that role very, very brilliantly. This is usually blamed uh, on President Trump, I think, to excess by the media. Clearly, his judgment wasn't fantastic, and indeed, on some issues, it was downright uh, crazy. Uh, but if you look at what was going on at the level of the Department of Health and Human Services and look down at CDC, there was a pretty serious public health failure at the federal level. Testing far from being ramped up, actually was held back by CDC. And I do think there's a lot of questions still to be asked about why it was that uh, HHS generally failed uh, to at least communicate right. effectively to the states what they needed to do. So, no, I think there was a failure at the federal level, uh, even in, in, in this system that is relatively decentralized. Neil, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your insight. Neil Ferguson, he's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist based out there in beautiful Palo Alto, California, one of the greatest, uh, most beautiful places in the U.S. Well, as you know, it's been quite the volatile few months. Markets underwritten by central banks around the world and plenty, plenty demand for dollars. Let's bring in somebody who knows a little bit about how to put together a portfolio and what to do maybe in an era of such volatility. Dan Skelly is Head of Market Research and Strategy of Wealth Management at Morgan Stanley. Dan, thanks for joining. You obviously have plenty of clients that are probably calling you and saying, what do we do? Where do we put our our, our money to work, what asset classes could benefit us here? What do you say to them? Yeah, good morning, Bonnie, and thank you so much for having me on your, your show this morning. So look, we're getting called and we're getting Zoomed, of course, now by clients. <laughs> so we're telling them a couple things. Number one, we're saying that you've seen the big crash and the big euphoric rally back, and the big news, the big fireworks are over for now. We think the market's likely to consolidate into a range the next three to six months, as the market starts to consider some other factors, including what's the rate of change on the reopening? Amid the reopening, what does the virus flare-ups look like? Um, At the same time, you're going to start to hear more positive progress or potential headlines around vaccines, antiviral therapies, 
Uh, and so the market's really juggling a lot of factors, both to the upside and the downside. And in some, we think that keeps the market rather consolidated, at least for the next three to six months. But we do think going into next year, and you've heard Morgan Stanley talk about this extensively now for three months, we do think the overarching theme is a V-shaped economic recovery going into mm. next year. All right, Dan. So the V-shaped recovery going into next year, that's, you know, at one point that was kind of, I would call it consensus initially, uh, and then that seemed to fade here as the the depths of the pandemic and the economic data started coming out. People were saying, I don't think that V is going to happen. Now it seems to be coming back a little bit. What's the, the kind of the two or three drivers for you to say a V-shaped recovery? Sure. It's, it's an excellent question. And it's one I would just highlight. We, we've really reiterated throughout, despite potentially you know, changing sentiments among, among the consensus. So what's driving the V-shaped recovery? It's really the, the size and the scope and the speed of policy. So when you look at fiscal and monetary policy combined, we've already executed around uh, a level around 50% 5.0 of US GDP, which we all know it far exceeds any historical stimulus measures in any cycle ever. So that's number one. Number two, we think that the speed of the re policy response has been incredibly notable. Why? Because when you look at precedents like 08, it took the Fed and it took Congress months to put together the emergency playbooks they executed back then. And that unfortunately allowed the credit cycle to deepen. And so what's really different this time is that the policymakers acted immediately. And the mm -hmm. fact was the epicenter of the crisis was health. So it's a completely bipartisan related epicenter and, and, and something everyone could band together around. And I think that's really crucial, right? Because it prevented a health slash economic crisis from morphing into a financial crisis. So the second part of the policy V-shaped impact uh, is truly seeing the credit markets and some of the liquidity in the markets functioning, companies accessing capital markets very efficiently, as you've seen. And I guess I would say the last part, right? is we all know we are a consumer-led economy. And when you look at the, the re initial reaction from consumers who are just starting to reopen and resume normal activities, we saw the retail sales upside surprise recently. Uh, we heard a very positive housing and mortgage update at our Morgan Stanley Financials Conference recently. We think the consumer is going to come back particularly strong given the pent-up demand, and that all informs the V-shaped scenario. Dan, what proportion of the people you speak with, both clients and colleagues, are concerned about inflation? Very, very few. So mm -hmm. it's something we don't hear often, either from our institutional clients, we're the largest prime broker in the world. We don't hear it very often from our wealth management clients, perhaps sporadically from the wealth management clients who are particularly, um, you know, from business owning uh, backgrounds, et cetera, who are you know, they're very focused on the deficit, as an example, and, and that makes sense. But in terms of the overall fears or concerns around inflation, I would say it's very limited. And I think that's another point Morgan Stanley has made in terms of an upside surprise, having that policy response, that continuation in policy, particularly on the fiscal side, we do expect a re-up of a fiscal upwards of a trillion uh, when the, some of the benefits expire uh, July month end. Um, we also would highlight, again, the consumer demand, the recovery in commodity markets. We've seen tremendous capital uh, expenditure declines in oil, given everything that's happening there. Uh, now we've obviously seen a pickup in driving. Well, I'm sure we'll see eventually 
a pickup in more uh, airline-related transportation fuel demand. Uh, that will take longer, obviously, but it'll, it'll happen. And thus, you're going to see an upward bias towards commodity prices. Uh, and then last but not least, what happens with China, right? This is really an enormous question mark in terms of capital uh, moving around the world supply chains. And to the extent we have supply chain reshoring, that's potentially another source of inflation down the road. Hey, Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your thoughts. We covered a lot of ground there. Dan Skelly, head of equity market model portfolios and market strategy at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. They have about $2.5 trillion under management, so they get to see a lot of the market giving us his thoughts there. And, Vani, I think the, the key thing is there, Morgan Stanley holding to that V-shaped recovery. Yeah, and I'm really fascinated that not more people are just floating the idea of potential inflation, and perhaps it's because of Bill Dudley's op-ed in uh, Bloomberg Opinion put it in my mind today, but there is a huge balance sheet out there, and you have to wonder how long it will be before people do start to be concerned about inflation. Yeah, you think about a $10 trillion uh, balance sheet, just extraordinary. We were below $4 billion just several months ago. Now, we have a very interesting interview for you. This, as travel begins to ramp up just ever so slowly again, Delta, for example, saying that it was going to restart flights to China via Seoul this week. It's only going to be once a week, and then July it'll be twice a week. But we are seeing just very small green shoots of travel starting up. Brian Chesky is Airbnb's CEO. He is discussing with Bloomberg here now why travel as we know it will never actually be the same. None of us were prepared for really a once in a century crisis. Our industry travel has described COVID as as big as 9-11 in 2008, many times over, something more akin to World War II. And when that happened, it felt like I was working on our S1, we were gonna file it March 31, and it felt like 12 years of success and you know had all these things and life was great. And suddenly, in you know, you build something in 12 weeks, and you lose most of it in four weeks. I can't quite describe what that feels like. And it just felt like everything the company broke. I felt like a captain of a ship and a torpedo just hit the side of the ship. Now, travel came basically to a standstill. And in many cases, people didn't want to travel or they couldn't travel legally. It was illegal to rent an Airbnb. What was the lowest point for you? The darkest hour? There were so many dark hours. That's the old like quote attributed Winston Churchill. If you're going through hell, just keep going. And man, um, I will tell you, the first dark moment was when we had about a billion dollars of cancellations from guests. You also had to cut 25% of the company and you gave, you know, an incredibly generous severance package. Your note to the team, I could, I could feel the, the pain yeah. in there. You know, talk yeah. to me about going through that process. Cutting was, 25% of your staff. It was the saddest thing I've ever done in my life, at least professionally. And we weren't sure if we'd have to do a layoff. And we had to face the hard truth that travel, we did not know when it was going to return. And we knew that when travel returned, it would be different. It would never be the same. You don't think travel will ever be the same? What no, does travel never will be. look like? Well, um, I, will, I, I don't know for sure, but here's what I'll say. Travel will be back, but it will look different. What trends are you seeing in Europe, in Asia, versus the United States? So United States has been very, very strong. It's, again, I, don't want, to, I want to clarify, it's, we, we, we cannot declare recovery anywhere because we don't yet know 
where it's pent up demand in temporary or sustainable recovery. But we've seen a temporary recovery in the United States. Europe, most of Europe, we've seen a recovery, a temporary recovery other than the United Kingdom. United Kingdom, I think, is still locked down until July 1. But France, Germany, um, Italy, Spain, you're seeing really strong growth. Um, Latin America is not recovered. And Asia is starting to recover, but not yet recovered. So North America and Europe are extremely strong. Latin America, Asia, kind of a bit behind. How much do you think getting back to normal depends on a vaccine? Or even then, things are going to be different. Travel as you knew it is over. You're never, ever going to see it again. I'll just say that right there. Travel as we knew it from Valentine's Day and before is over. It's gone. It doesn't mean travel's gone, but that travel's gone. And nobody knows quite what it's going to be because it's really up to the industry to invent the way forward. But again, I think business travel is really, really going to be hit for a while. I think a lot of people are realizing they can do meetings on Zoom. They're rethinking a lot of the conventions and conferences. People are going to rediscover the outdoors. For example, there's 400 national parks in the country. Most Americans have never been a national park. Most Americans don't even know they live within 200 miles of national park. I think one prediction, national parks are going to be in. People are going to travel a lot more outdoors. These are things that are going to happen. And the other thing that I think is going to happen is travel and living are going to blend together. What do I mean? Well, if you can do your job from home, then if you can work from home, you could theoretically work from any home, anywhere in the world, so long as you're in the right time zone. And so what you're going to start to see is not just travel redistribution, but you might see, and no one can say for sure, population redistribution. People may start moving to smaller towns and communities. That was a fascinating discussion. Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky speaking with Bloomberg Te- Technologies' Emily Chang on why travel as we know it will never be the same. That's a big, big statement, Vani. I wonder how things will, in fact, play out. I mean, it's good to actually hear the truth, right, Paul? So many yep. people p- pretending that, you know, at some point we will go back to pre-pandemic times, but that's never going to happen. We're never going to be pre-pandemic again. And, uh, you know, as much as people say these things emerge every 20 years or so, and it's true, this one feels different in the sense that it is just so ridiculously easy to catch. And, you know, vaccines are so far away and we don't know how long they last. So, yeah, I can completely imagine that travel as we knew it, where you just could hop out to the airport, jump on a, you know, a, a shuttle plane down to D.C. or wherever yep. you wanted to go in the world, that's done. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, uh, Brian Chesky at uh, Airbnb CEO, he certainly has a great window into global travel trends. I mean, Airbnb is just everywhere. And he was suggesting that uh, certain uh, European markets coming back uh, a little bit sooner than some others. Uh, the UK is still in lockdown and he's seeing some uh, pockets of strength here in the US. Um, but again, I think the uh, until there is, you know, arguably, I think a lot of observers say until there is a globally available vaccine that, you know, just consumer activity in general on a global scale will be uh, greatly reduced um, or just certainly impacted. And I think that's kind of what we're hearing from the Airbnb CEO. And it's interesting that he hasn't ruled out an IPO this year, but certainly yeah. I'm sure it's uh, not something they're immediately thinking about. Also, that lawsuit with New York City has now been settled about providing host data. And in New York, you you have to stay for 30 days now, which also changes the business model. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll have to see how that plays out for the good folks at Airbnb. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.